We're here to teach on forgiveness. Uh, this is our third sermon in a series on forgiveness. And what I'm going to land on here in a few moments will be forgiving oneself. Uh, we're covering this and we're going to teach on forgiveness for several weeks. I'll be out of town uh, for two weeks coming up and we'll still continue with those who minister in my place. They'll continue teaching on forgiveness. And as I've been saying, I want us to be really good at forgiving because of what's coming for the church. It, it can't be stopped. These things must be. The Lord Jesus prophesied it. He even told his early disciples, your own mother and father, your own family will give you up to be killed. And if you don't hate mother and father, then you're not worthy of me, he said. And so we got to be able to forgive. We have to be like the early disciples, Stephen, who falling down, being stoned. He said, Lord, forgive him. And as somebody pointed out to me recently, he was able to look at his persecutors, his stoners, and say, Lord, forgive him, because he had his eyes lifted up and he could see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And there's a cool little sermon in there about when your perspective changes, it's easy to forgive. When you look unto Jesus, it's easy to forgive the creation. When you can behold the creator, the creation doesn't move you anything. We're going to have to be better at forgiving. We've kind of made the point, and I'm going to review for a few points here. We made the point that we have trouble forgiving our closest loved ones. We have forgiving church members. Some of you even struggle forgiving me or my wife, and we are the ones that probably live for you more than anybody else in your life. And, and that just shows a lack of maturity in some area that you thought was off limits to God, and I'm just a vessel, and I yield to whatever needs to be said, and it happens, and then your weakness gets exposed. You've got to make a consecrated decision in your heart, though, if you're going to finish your race, that, that you're not going to be able to be offended by people that love you. And even if you recognize you've been offended, you quickly get the victory over that so that you don't stay there. It's okay to know, to have your weakness exposed. It, it needs to be exposed, but don't, don't protect your weakness. Bring it out further yourself and strengthen it. So we talked about, uh, we need to be good at forgiving. We're commanded to forgive. It's not a matter of if we need to, but how quickly can we? Uh, the very fact that, com that forgiveness is a commandment informs us we're going to be offended we're going to be hurt. We're going to be betrayed. We're going to suffer the sufferings of Christ, which by the way, the sufferings of Christ are not sickness and disease. Tell me one sickness Jesus got. Tell me one disease Jesus got. It's not lack, debt, or poverty. Tell me one time Jesus went without. When Jesus said, when Paul said that we make up in ourselves the sufferings of Christ, what did Jesus suffer? Betrayal, abandonment, persecution, ultimately martyrdom, even by his own family, not martyred by his family, but betrayed, persecuted, and, and ridiculed by his own family and his hometown. His hometown tried to kill him. I mean, can you imagine preaching a sermon where you went to high school and at first everybody's excited and before the sermon's over, they're grabbing you and thrusting you to the high place of the city and trying to throw you off the hill? I don't think you're ever going to return there again. You talk about tough crowd. And that's what the Lord said. In fact, the scriptures revealed to us he never went back there again. That was their one chance to get right with God, and they didn't. They tried to kill God. We're commanded to forgive because we're gonna need to do it. And there's no person in your life who's ever betrayed you who you are free to not forgive. Every person must be forgiven by you and I. We've gotta just go ahead and make up our mind now. We're gonna be good at forgiving, and we're gonna drop the charges against anybody that ever violates us. If you didn't know, the violating has not stopped. It's not over. You don't ever get to a place where violation stops. You and I will have someone violate us to the day we die. 
even if it's on your deathbed and you're laying hands on loved ones, there's going to be somebody who purposely didn't show up to see you go home, and that's going to hurt. There's going to be somebody roll their eyes at you as you're laying hands as Abraham did and as Jacob did, blessing your, your kin, and they're going to say, this is so dumb. That's going to be an opportunity on your deathbed as you take your last breath to need to forgive somebody. So we ought to be good at it. My goodness, be good at it. We'll all be hurt and offended in life. Therefore, we'll all need to be able ministers of forgiveness. Freely we receive offense. <laughs> Freely we should also give forgiveness. The offense can be used to reveal our own weaknesses. We covered that in depth last week. Uh, don't, don't fall apart because you realize you're weak somewhere. Say, praise God. System was tested, found the leaks. Now we can fix the leaks. If you can see where you've been offended, go study that thing. This is what engineers do. They build something, then they test it, and they want it to fail. They test things they build for failure. They want it to fail. They'll take it to failure point to see where, if it's going to fail, it's going to fail, so they can make that weakness more robust. Don't fall apart because you had to forgive. Don't fall apart because you're in offense right now. Use it as a gift from God to figure out where your system still leaks and is still weak, and then improve upon it. We can use these offenses to reveal weaknesses, pride, immaturity, and even insecurities. Listen, if you're my sheep, I have offended you. And to that, I partially apologize. I apologize because I'm supposed to. <laughs> but I get tickled at it because what offended you set the person next to you free. And what made you angry made the person behind you laugh hysterically and talk about it for three weeks. And so I, I kind of repent because I didn't mean to hurt you, but maybe a little. Maybe I was just trying to help you but you misinterpreted help. But I also don't apologize, even though that was a very weak apology, because it was a blessing to you to know how come everybody around you laughed when you said, I hate that guy. Because evidently what I said in me is not the problem. When everybody around you in a service laughed and got a kick out of it and wrote it down and said, man, that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm preaching that on the work tomorrow. But you got mad and even talked about leaving. So in one regard, I also say, you're welcome because it helps you realize where you're yet carnal. I have to do the same thing in my life when I get around ministers or the people in my circles and I think, people like this guy? What's wrong with me? That's honestly what I say. Everybody likes this guy. What's wrong with me? Everybody liked that sermon. I didn't. What's wrong with me? And I, I kind of go introspect and see where I'm the problem. We got to stop assuming everybody else is the problem. All right, enough of that. Move on. Forgiveness is one way we can bestow the God kind of love toward the offender. This is how we can manifest the love of God in our life, by forgiving, by giving someone what we freely received and show them what it's like to have someone bigger than them in their lives who they can't really hurt. Forgiveness means, of course, to drop the charges and we let the guilty go free. And the Lord said in the Gospels, we have to do that from the heart. We can't just make some kind of cheap little confession, say, oh, brother, I forgive you. It's under the blood. We have to genuinely mean it. We genuinely let the charges go. And one of the ways we can determine we've truly dropped the charges is when we revisit the event in our mind, it no longer elicits hurt emotions. Now, I use this example so that we can relate. But if I were to talk to you about the Khmer Rouge and what the Khmer Rouge did to the Laotians, number one, you don't even know where Laos is. You think that's the plural for lice. 
and you got de-loused. <laughs> you don't even know where Laos or Cambodia, Vietnam is, or what, what the Khmer Rouge did during the Vietnam War era. So if we were to talk about it, you'd go, man, that's horrible. That's really wretched. But if you lived through it, you'd have a whole other set of emotions attached to it. If you watch them rape your children or abuse your parents or murder or steal or embezzle, what, these were communists, by the way, uh, you would have a whole other set of emotions. You can tell, we can tell we've truly forgiven when we revisit the events like in a history book and we can see the tragedy of it, but we don't have a personal emotional connection to it. That's when you can really tell you've dropped the charges and you have fortified your heart through the act of forgiveness and Christian growth. All right, so hopefully you hear that. If you visit the emotions, excuse me, if you visit, revisit the event mentally and it triggers the same flood of emotions, even if it's just a little bit, you, you don't have forgiveness totally worked out yet. We have rejected the notion that true forgiveness means you forget and don't remember. We're smart people. We have an intellect. We have a memory. I don't think God expects us to forget. But we don't have to have the emotional baggage and the emotional triggering anymore. So let that be the indicator that we've truly mastered forgiveness in some arena. Now, if it does still hurt, no condemnation there. Walk, walk it out. Say, Lord, why does it still hurt? Why do I still want to get vengeance? Why do I still want to get even? Why do, I still, why do I still hurt there? And talk to the Lord about it. But don't be religious and say, oh, I forgave you years ago, brother. I forgave you before you did it, brother. No, you didn't. You still hurt. So let's be honest with the Lord about it. Let's bring it up. I'm all for bringing things up and laying it before the Lord in the sunlight and letting these things be what they should be before God. Forgiveness does not authorize us to correct anybody. We talked about that. That's kind of that redneck attitude we've all had. I've been really good at it in my own heart. I'm going to teach them a lesson they'll never forget. That doesn't sound anything like forgiveness. I'm going to get even and then get some more. It's going to be uneven by the time I'm done. Forgiveness does not require any lesson to be taught at all. In fact, it's probably better for you to just forgive and walk away. And if there's a lesson for them to learn, let somebody else deal with it. Because if your hand still has to be on it, it truly shows we've not forgotten or, or let the card charges go. We're still trying to fix this thing so that we feel better. Well, you're never going to feel better with your hand on the old problem. You've got to let it go and commend it to the grace of God. And, and like an old timer said, it's hard to worship God when your hands are on everything. So just lift your hands and say, Lord, I, help me again. I commend them to, my, to your grace. I commend my enemy to your grace. Be good to them. Forgiveness does not authorize us to correct anybody. This is often the voice of hurt, fear, and defensiveness talking. It doesn't mean we deny the pain or offense. It simply means we need to extend mercy. We don't need to be the ones that fixes our enemy. Uh, there's an old John Wayne quote from, I can't remember the movie, says, don't worry, little lady, I'll fix their wagon, which means I'm going to burn them to the ground. I'll get vengeance for you. Well, that's great, but you're not authorized to do that. Let the police do it. Let a judge do it. Let the court system do it. We have to be clear. We don't want to take that stuff home to our wives, our husbands, our children. We don't, we don't want vengeance and vindication to be inbred into our children. We don't want that I'm going to get you before you get me. We don't want that permeating our children's soul. We don't want our kid to be the eight-year-old turd bully on the playground. Why are eight-year-olds bullies? Because their parents are bullies. Why do 10-year-olds get in fights? Because their, kids have, their parents have hostility in them. 
So if we're forgivers, our children will become forgivers. If we're distributors of mercy, our children will become distributors of mercy. But if we think we're perfect and how dare you ever violate me, our kids are going to be those little punks too. So we have to also learn this for our kids' sake and move on. We, last week, we used the Rolodex concept to see who still requires your forgiveness. And I had to explain what a Rolodex was. So I have a picture ready for Rolodex. Let's throw the, the Rolodex picture up so that we can see what a Rolodex is. This is old school. There it is. It actually looks relatively new, but the design is old. So a Rolodex is uh, this file, this rolling file of names. Basically, it's a phone book, a personal phone book, and you would handwrite the people's name and number on that. And well, I use the concept of rolling through a Rolodex and seeing who in your life still causes your insides to burn or what event. So you roll this, nope, roll this, nope, roll this, nope, this person, that event, this person, that event. And I encourage all of you to do it in prayer, maybe on a drive when you have some time to yourself and see, is there any tragedy from your past that when you visit it, through this Rolodex concept, your heart goes, ugh. I've, I've shared that there's been things in my past where I think about, I used to make a fist. Just the subconscious thought or the subconscious act, I'd think about an event, I'd make a fist and I'd want vengeance. Well, that's an event now I can say with all honesty, when I visit it, I got nothing. Like, yeah, that happened. All right, look at my hands, no fist. That means you've been delivered. What events, what people do you visit in your heart through this mental Rolodex and your heart go, ugh? What person in our church? Ugh. What personal doctrine of mine that I teach that you're, ugh? Like you don't have to agree and you don't have to agree with what somebody did to you, but you don't have to be, ugh, in your heart. That, ugh, makes you spiritually ugly. Figure out what's causing it. There's a lot of preachers I disagree with. There's a lot of mainline doctrine I disagree with. And, and I can disagree with it without going, ugh. There's a lot of folks I don't agree with, but I don't have to look at them and go, ugh. What's wrong with us that we have to be the only one that's right? Now, with our mouth, none of us would confess that we're 100% right. But with our attitudes, I think we believe we are. And especially if we think our family's untouchable or our reputation's untouchable. That's, that's an arrogance. And maybe you're the one that the rest of us flip through our roller deck. We get to your name and we're like, ugh. <laughs> we won't ask these questions when we come to church, but everybody's got somebody here that you don't want to have to work with. And yet God makes sure you do so that he gets your Rolodex clean, the Rolodex of your heart. What I'm going to teach on this morning is somebody came to me last week and said, you know, pastor, what do I do? I roll through the Rolodex of my life and I, have, I can genuinely say, this is a person talking to me, I can genuinely say I have ought against no one, but when I get to a picture of me, I hate myself. I can't forgive myself. I am the hardest person to forgive in my life. And I said, I appreciate your honesty. That's a wonderful question. I'll teach on that Sunday, if to benefit nobody, but to benefit you. And so this is a gentleman. He said, well, thank you, sir. So that's what this morning's message is for. But maybe in that Rolodex, you roll and you, you're free to forgive everybody. You're easily, it's easy to forgive everybody and to, to go beyond and move beyond any past traumas or past events. But maybe it's you. Maybe you get to your own name and you see yourself and your heart goes, ugh. Well, I want to help with that. But let's, let's review real quick. Why do we forgive? God commands us to. It glorifies God. It is just, freely we've received it, so freely we must give it. 
it allows us or qualifies us. That word might offend some, but if you have to do something to get something, that's called a qualifier. Jesus said, if you don't forgive, my father can't forgive you. Therefore, forgiveness qualifies you for the father's forgiveness. That's in the gospels. Uh, it sets us free both from God's judgment and from soulish exhaustion. Because it does take a lot of work to be judge, jury, and executioner constantly in our heart to think about how am I gonna get back? How am I gonna get this person? How am I gonna teach them a lesson? How am I gonna make sure they never do this to me or anybody else? Who made you judge, jury, and executioner? Were they wrong? Sure. Are you wrong now? Yes. Two wrongs don't make a right. Three left turns do, but two wrongs don't make a right. It removes an enemy's influence off of us. If you can't be offended, the enemy has no more leverage. We cover that with all the racial slurs that our nation's drunk in love with. If a, if a word doesn't offend you, it has no power over you. It seems to me the most powerful word in the American lexicon is the N-word. I actually almost just said it there. It almost just came out because I recognize its potency, but its potency has to be learned and its potency is taken by faith. Its potency is totally taken by faith. And if it didn't offend you, an enemy would be stripped of their power over you. So I want you to know, as long as that word offends you, you're subject to that word. And I've proven that and taught that for a long time now. Forgiveness also builds our walk with God because it is going to take his help to forgive. So we need to make sure we're constantly asking God for his grace to forgive, his grace to let the charges go, his grace to move on, and his grace to be free. And then one of the things we said, and we'll move on now to this, this teaching on self-forgiveness is, um, when it comes to unforgiveness, if we harbor unforgiveness, the longer we do, the more we're gonna want vengeance. And the Bible's very strict. Make way for God to revenge. And the Bible says that the anger of man worketh not the righteousness of God, or the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. The Bible also says that the law only permits us to take an eye for an eye. As the New Living Translation says, the punishment must fit the offense. It must be equal. We don't want that, nor do we believe it. As we have testified the last couple of weeks, somebody verbally offends us, we want to take their life. Somebody disagrees with us politically, we want to issue death threats. Uh, somehow on the other, on my, other day on my YouTube feed, I, I watched police videos, and so I was watching road rage videos. And you wouldn't believe the knuckleheads that'll get out of their car and have fist fights because somebody cut them off. And then how soon does a fist fight escalate to a gunfight? So we even violate the Mosaic law, which we think we're above because it says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, burn for a burn, arm for an arm, limb for a limb. The punishment must be equal to the offense, to the harm. But we don't want that. We want escalated and we want preemptive escalation. Before you even think about talking bad about me, I'm gonna sucker punch you. I, now we're talking about pre-crime prevention. You haven't even insulted me and I want to punch you in the face. Yes, so you won't even think about it. Well, my brain is none of your responsibility. And if you're going to exist in my head, you're weird. Somebody, what was somebody saying? Uh, somebody who watches our stream, they actually talk to me a lot of stuff. They said, do you know so-and-so in town still runs you down? And I said, no. They said, you have a lot of free space in their mind. You, have, you are getting a lot of free rental property in their head. And I'd never heard that before. I said, really, man, anytime I talk about you, they run you down. They don't like you. They can't stand to hear about you. And, they, and they, so he asked me, so what'd you do to get so much free rental space in their head? I said, I don't know. I, hopefully he'll evict me and he can have some peace. 
but apparently somebody needs a cause that's not Jesus, and I'm that cause. What do we do, though, when the hardest person to forgive is ourself? So let's talk about self-forgiveness. I think we've all heard the expression, if such and such were to happen, I just don't think I could ever forgive myself. And a lot of folks, usually, usually it's adults that make these statements because we're older and we're a lot more wizened and um, we want to prevent calamity and harm. So lots of times adults make these decisions and they say, you know, I can't let you do that because if something were to happen, I would never be able to forgive myself. If I let you go off to war and you weren't to come home, I don't know if I could ever forgive myself. Or uh, I think we've all heard the expression. It's almost cliche. But we also hear, often hear this, this statement that uh, somebody will say, that's a mistake or a decision I'll have to live with the rest of my life. Both of these are expressions of the inability to forgive oneself. And I get it. I understand the concept. I think we all understand it. Young folks probably haven't been hurt bad enough or made enough dumb decisions to get to this level of personal responsibility. Honestly, both of these statements are somewhat, and hear me on that, they're somewhat praiseworthy because they are a statement of self-responsibility. If something happened to you, I couldn't forgive me. I did this and I regret it. It's a decision I will have to live with. Now, in that regard, it's a positive statement because it's not that, well, this is not my problem. That's on you. I'm glad I'm not you. You did that yourself. I don't like that attitude. But if we're not careful with this other attitude, I can't forgive myself. I'll have to live with that decision the rest of my life. If we stay there too long, it becomes condemnation. And God doesn't want us to live in condemnation. So let me, let me touch on condemnation real quick. There are two sources of condemnation. Let me back up more. There is judgment and then there is condemnation. And I don't want us to confuse the two. Everything must be judged. And you and I live as experts of judgment. We judge road conditions. That's why we canceled church this morning and why we're streaming. We judge the thermometer. We judge the bank account. We judge our children's friends. We judge the quality of a TV show, whether we need to turn it off or not. We live and we are practitioners of judgment. Where the nicer than Jesus crowd comes into play, they teach the heresy that we shouldn't judge anything. That's moronic and lunacy. What we don't have permission to do is to condemn. That is to condemn to damnation or, or eternal judgment. We can't do that. We, we, we have permission from scripture to judge fruit and say, listen, the Bible condemns this as sin. If you continue down that road, you'll be condemned with it. So please don't sin that sin anymore. Who are you to judge? Someone perfectly authorized and equipped to do so. So that's the difference between judgment and condemnation. Now, when it comes to self-condemnation, what we're now doing is judging ourselves and then casting ourselves off as without hope, unworthy of mercy, unworthy of forgiveness, unworthy of redemption. And, and we're basically calling ourselves irredeemable and useless. We don't even have permission to do that to ourselves. That self-condemnation comes from one of two sources according to the scripture. Romans 8 says that uh, there's therefore now no condemnation. So we have a verse that tells us there should be no condemnation for those that walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. So the one of the preemptive or the qualifiers is you have to be walking according to the spirit, not living in the flesh. If you live in the flesh, you're going to live totally condemned. So let's just assume you and I, if we're struggling with self-condemnation or self-unforgiveness, and I wish there was a better word than just self-unforgiveness, 
Let's assume we're walking in the spirit and we're pursuing God with everything we can, everything we have. We are not to be subjects of condemnation, but it comes from two sources. One is the devil. He will condemn us. He's the accuser of the brethren. He constantly reminds us and reminds us and reminds us of what we've done and where we've been. There was an old t-shirt years ago that says, every time the devil reminds you of where you've been, remind him of where he's going. Love it. It's a good little bit of spiritual warfare and you have to do it audibly. Well, devil, you're right. You're accurate. And I'm proud of you because you're not very often right. I did do that. And I was there. But that was 20 years ago. And boy, there's a lot of water under that bridge. But let me remind you now of where you're going and where you're headed. And there's no hope for you because you're damned. So we can recognize condemnation when it comes from the devil and we cast it down. But the second place it comes from is the heart. We'll look at that verse here in a little bit. If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart. So we have to be able to recognize that this self-unforgiveness is a, is a condemnation that is proceeding forth from our heart. All, all forgiveness and all unforgiveness is an extension and an action of the heart. So what do I do when I can't forgive myself? Well, let's also define what produces this emotion, this very hard, very painful, very crippling spiritual condition. I find that the greatest self source of self-loathing comes from the recognized negligence that resulted in the pain or harm of a loved one. That's my personal definition. I'll read it again. I think most of us experience some kind of unforgiveness when we recognize our negligence resulted in the harm or pain to a loved one. And I, hopefully that kind of sets in. I've got a couple of examples. What about like if a pool owner was remiss and didn't shut the gate and a baby or a neighbor or a child or a grandchild stumbled in and drowned? I could never forgive myself, they would say. They didn't intentionally harm. They didn't set out to drown a child. Their negligence, and they'll say, I should have done better. I should have done better. I should have done better. I knew to close the gate. I didn't close the gate. You can see how that person would go in this dark spiral of condemnation, replaying the paramedic, replaying the lifeless baby, replaying what was I doing instead. And that can drive a person insane. And that's why we don't take this lightly and I don't make light of it in any regard. I got a couple of examples here. What about if a gun owner's weapon was found by a child, an unsecured weapon, we should say, and someone was shot several years ago. I think Rick worked the case 15, 16 years ago. Uh, a man bought a black powder rifle from the pawn shop, 50 caliber. That is a monster bullet. He brought it home and he was looking at it why in the world this thing wasn't cleared before it was sold to a pawn shop? Why in the world it wasn't cleared after it was bought at the pawn shop? I have no idea. But the thing discharged into his granddaughter's chest, nearly point blank. Can you imagine a 50 caliber slug going through it? I think the girl was about 12, going right through her chest in a living room. She couldn't be saved. Total negligence, total accident, violate all rules of gun safety along the way. That grandfather, I don't know what's happened to him, but you just killed your grandchild totally through negligence. How could I ever forgive myself? It's a decision I'll have to live with the rest of my life. What about if a parent's cigarette caused a house fire that killed someone they loved? 
You know, the t proverbial, the typical fall asleep with a cigarette, the ash falls, sets the house on fire. If a hunter stray bullet tragically maimed someone, if a drunk driver killed someone. Before we got married, um, right before we got married, my wife was hit by a drunk driver. He was backing out of the bar. I have no idea how bars are allowed to let people leave their bar drunk and drive. The bar no longer exists, praise God. I don't know why our city's obsessed with having a liquor store and booze everywhere. It's only driven our crime up, but you know, our city leaders and taxes, two wonderful powers in the universe, politicians and money. Both of them, I guess, necessary evils. My wife was hit by a drunk driver. The airbag broke her finger and it didn't kill her. She totaled the car, which brought great joy to me. It was a classic, fully restored vintage Cadillac. She totaled it with her Volvo. Praise God for the Swedes. Praise God for, there's the word, comeuppance for the drunk. Thankfully, we, she had surgery and she's fine. Uh, but a few months later, we were married and one of my coworkers at the zinc mine, a great geologist out of New Mexico, a guy named Mendez, um, he was struggling with alcohol and he actually got pulled over and was arrested for a DUI. And um, he knew the story about my wife being hit by a drunk driver. And he so cared for me, this Mendez, it actually tore him up. He repented to me crying for his own DUI that he didn't hit anybody. He just got pulled over for being drunk. And he said, I just kept thinking, what if it was me that hit Chris's wife? What if I could have killed, it tore him up. And thankfully it, it shook him into some reality. He sobered up. He was drinking heavily because he'd been through a divorce. But for him, just the thought that he could have been the guy that hurt my wife tore him up because he, he and I were good friends and he really looked up to me. He was a lot older than me, but he was still a really good guy. You could see how someone drunk driving could cause them to be very heartbroken and they would, you see it on the news, I want to repent in court to the family. I just so sincerely apologize for what my, my stupidity has cost you. I can never repay you. You see the, the struggling with forgiveness and the, the trying to find resolution over condemnation. How about a woman? And by the way, we say a woman, not a birth person, but a woman who has an abortion. Typically in the moment, they're driven of demons. I believe all abortions are demon driven. Any woman in her right mind would not do that. Demons get involved in abortions. And regardless of what the academics and the elites and the politicians say, it's called a woman, not a birth person. Only women can have abortions. But a woman who later realizes, I should have never done that. I have to live with that decision the rest of my life. You could see where the unforgiveness for self would come in. Or if a person's career pursuits wound their family, there's one. I hear that a lot. I should have spent more time with my kids. I should have taken more vacations. I should have given up those last three promotions because now I can't get my kids back and the money means nothing to me. You got to live with that. These all have the one shared ingredient of unintentional harm. None of these people, except for maybe the abortionist, she knows she's going in there to terminate a life and to kill a baby. But in the moment, I give them a lot of mercy because of the delusion of demons and Planned Parenthood is a hornet's nest of demon activity. Other than that, they all share one ingredient and that is unintentional harm, yet pain still results and they usually come out unscathed and they're looking at the person who's lying injured, either in their soul or in their body, somewhere in their life. And there is a shame, there's a guilt, they call it survivor's guilt. 
lot of folks come out of war with survival's guilt. A lot of soldiers, 9-11, they have survivor's guilt. Uh, and they have to walk, work through that. It's a condition of the heart. The other issue that arises is as parents age, they can look back with 20-20 vision to see how they could have been a better parent. And these observations are often very painful. The person that then offends them the most is themselves. This is why we also try to encourage young people, listen to old folks. We have more experience than you. Please don't try to pioneer anything new until you've pioneered what's old. Don't try to go off and hit the Cumberland Gap in a different direction. Pioneer the Cumberland Gap that's been pioneered and then go find new trails. Self-loathing can be recognized by the mental obsession of the woulda, coulda, shoulda. If you don't know whether you're self-loathing or have some personal unforgiveness towards self, does your mind constantly go back and go, woulda, coulda, shoulda, a woulda, shoulda, coulda. I think we all do that in a moment. Like, ah, I should have packed this or I could have been there or I had the opportunity to be here. I, I think I say currently, currently, the only regret I have in life is not going to the Dave Brubeck concert in 2005. Only regret. I, I was younger. Still, I still could do it now. That's 20 years ago. And I could have made the haul from East Tennessee over to Asheville to have a 70-person concert with Dave Brubeck, who means nothing to any of you because you don't know who he was. And then my dumb mom, she's not dumb, but that's me being irritable, she got to see Dave Brubeck in concert to even know who he was. And it was on a whim, on a business trip. There's a coulda, shoulda, woulda. I could have seen Dave Brubeck live. I should have seen Dave Brubeck live. If I'd have known now, then what I know now, I would have seen Brubeck live. I don't have any unforgiveness towards myself. I just think I could have seen Dave Brubeck live. Great jazz pianist. Messed with traditional jazz timing and was brilliant. Self-loathing and condemnation is recognized by the longing for a second chance or a time machine to go back and make a better past. I think we all, if, we're, if we don't carefully advance through life and listen to those that have gone before us, we'll all want to do that at some point. This is why... I find the biggest thing I do as a pastor that irritates most people is I encourage folks to tap the brakes. And it, you wouldn't believe how many folks it irritates. I even have fun, some folks say, you should just challenge pastor and blow through it. Don't listen to that person. That's rebellious. I don't care who they are. As the pastor, I stand feet taller than everybody. And I can see things. And all I ever say is tap the brakes and people want to screech like a banshee. I'm trying to prevent you from wanting a time machine in five years or 10 years or 20 years. Reality and responsi responsibility demand we give up all hope for a better past. Reality and responsibility demand we give up all hope for a better past. There cannot be a better past. The past is past. It is set. It's in the books, as they say. It's never gonna change. All we can do is move forward. The laws of faith declare that we must honor and obey God today because now faith is. It isn't yesterday. Faith isn't tomorrow. Hope is tomorrow. Faith is today. Now is faith. And so if we're going to advance, we're going to have to do what we've been given today. Whatever mess we're facing today, whatever calamity we have today, we only glorify God by obeying the word with what we see on our plate today. That's how we begin to beat this thing. I'm going to give us about five steps here in a minute for how we beat unforgiveness Personal unforgiveness, four steps, excuse me. I just want to get through some of these bullet points here. 
Faith applies the word of God to the current situation. Faith can never apply the word of God to what was yesterday. Thinking of a Beatles song. I got to move on. <laughs> Everything is a song. We have to move on. So with what we're facing today, we apply the word of God. And that's the only hope we have. It's the only avenue we have out. The only way to change the future is to obey God in the present. The only way to change the future is to obey God in the present. The present is a mess because of stupidity yesterday, but the only way to make a better tomorrow is to obey God today. So self-loathing has to dry up because self-loathing only wakes up feeling bad again tomorrow. The only way we dry up self-loathing and, and personal unforgiveness is to do the word of God today and tomorrow will be a little better and the next day will be a little more better. But if all we do is wake up feeding the furnace that is self-loathing, we start to really believe bigger lies than are necessary and it drives people to depression and suicide. I woulda, shoulda, coulda. Yes, you shoulda. Yes, you coulda. Maybe you, you woulda, but you didn't. So let's move on. Got to. God wants to heal the brokenhearted. That's Isaiah 61. But how does that healing and forgiveness begin? How do we gain confidence once again? That's one of the powerful forces of unforgiveness and self-loathing is you have no confidence because you live under this constant fear that you're going to mess it up again. You, you live under this constant fear that nobody should trust you again. I mean, really, you put yourself in the outhouse, the doghouse, the backhouse, and God wants to call you out of it. Yes, you made a mess, and you've already begun to fix it more than you realize because at least you're humble enough to realize it was your fault and you're taking responsibility. But I want to help us move beyond this is my fault and it was my responsibility and I failed. Great. That's a good foundation, but we got to build on from there because you can't keep licking the wound. The wound only gets worse the more you lick it told the story of a dog we had growing up that began to get nervous and bite it. I think it was Spanky was the name of the dog and bite it itself and then begin to lick. And before long, Spanky would go retreat under the bed somewhere and uh, lick itself. We had another dog named Muggsy. We had a white cat with a black ho a mohawk we called Mr. T back in the 80s. I felt like that was pretty appropriate. A solid white cat with a black mohawk. I often would throw that cat in the creek because I here, cats don't like water. I'm a scientist as an eight-year-old. We're going to prove it. Do they like water? Cats do not like water. Mr. T especially did not like water. He pitied the fool. Throw him in that water over and over again. Spanky would lick this wound till it became this nasty, festering sore. At some point, you got to stop licking the wound, let it dry up, let it heal, and go on. How do we get confidence? How do I forgive myself and find freedom from my own shame? Isn't it amazing? We're born again, blood-bought, redeemed, spirit-filled, and sometimes we need to find freedom from our own shame. So I'm going to give you four points here, and we'll stop and explain each one a little bit. And I, it's pretty common sense, and I don't say that to insult you. Sometimes when you're swallowed up of shame, you can't see clearly. So somebody needs to come into your life, a pastor, a preacher, a friend, a brother, sister, and speak clarity and say, just follow my voice, come towards me, follow my voice, come towards me, we'll get you out of this. And some of this I learned by helping people out of some really nasty, dark perversion. So we're gonna follow a hard course of action here, but if you'll trust me, it will work. Some of this is gonna undermine a little bit of faith doctrine, but if you'll trust me, it'll work. Faith doctrine taught us to click our heels and put a facade up, and it didn't fix anything. 
Faith, the faith doctrine got us into a ditch where everything had to have a veneer and what was behind it was truly rotting. But we just, I believe I receive. I, I don't believe I receive that. I don't receive that. Well, it's the honest truth. It's happening. I don't receive that. Well, I'm sorry you don't receive it. You don't have to. It's already in your house. Now let's turn this thing. All right, so point number one. What, how do I get freedom from my own shame? Number one, this is gonna be hard, maybe not. Lay out all the charges and claims you have against yourself. Let's go to Psalm 51, because I do have verses for all of this. Psalm verse, uh, 51, verse three, the famous Psalm of forgiveness, repentance, and restoration when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and he was rebuked by Nathan the prophet. Verse three says, and here's my basis for this first point of action. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. We don't were to fake it up and say, well, I'm forgiven. I don't know what you're talking about. If you're forgiven, it ought to be easy to talk about. And we ought to be able to look back and say, boy, I did that. That was really dumb. Don't be like me. So my first point of action is lay out all the charges and claims you have against yourself. If it helps, write them down Write every charge, every thought, every failure, every shoulda, coulda, woulda. In a sense, puke it all up. Scrape, scrape it like a mayonnaise jar with one of those spatulas. Get everything out because once we get it out, we don't want the devil to have anything else to come and point at. And I'm not telling you to write it on Facebook. You should be more mature than social media. Write it down for you and your spouse or you and your parent or you and just you. Are you an accountability partner? If you need that, you can bring it to me if you want, but I'm not telling you to because I don't really want to know. But if you need help, I'm here. Write down everything. Like a prosecuting attorney, get all the charges you are currently facing on paper. And then I would read them out loud, not in front of the whole church, not in front of the work, but just in front of a mirror. Here forth are the charges I level against myself because you're already screaming it in your heart. So at least now we can make a, bring a, I, this is gonna sound weird to some folks. It's almost like you're doing it for the devil too. And here's why, before folks who don't know anything about spiritual warfare wanna call it witchcraft. We have God the Father as judge. We have Jesus, the defender, the advocate. If any man have, if any man sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, First John. We have the accuser, the brother, the, the prosecutor. So we have the judge, the prosecutor, the defender. Here we are, the perp, the plaintiff, maybe the defendant. Let's read our own case against us. So the devil knows, we know what you know, and you know what we know. Is there anything else you'd like to add to this list of charges? Lord Jesus, you're my defender, you're my attorney. Here's the, everything I can think of. Here's what we need to make a case to help. God the Father, you're merciful, but you are righteous as well. So in a sense, you kind of call to order court. And all this is just an act to help your mind clear everything. You can do all this in a moment in your car. But if it helps to take a little bit of a performance, so be it. You can make a liturgy out of it. Become a little ceremony if you want. Whatever it takes to help you clear the air. And the reason some people need this paper written down and they need this little impromptu court is that when the charges are reminded of again, you can say, oh, no, no, no. Those have been expunged. Don't you remember we had court January 25th, 2024? 
and the, the prosecutor brought forth all the charges. I added a couple he didn't know about. And then my defender, the Lord Jesus, gave me about 100 scriptures and we read those and I repented and confessed all of it. Yeah, we've already had court. We can't have double jeopardy here. I can't be tried twice for the same sin. That's why we would make a little bit of a ceremony or a liturgy out of it. Not to be weird, but to help people who need that kind of clearance, that kind of closure, that kind of catharsis. Read them out loud. So step number two, after you read them out loud, plead guilty because you already know you are. Plead guilty. Guilty to all the charges. How do you plead? I plead guilty. Are these charges against you true? Every one of them. And maybe you have to plead guilty to those you failed, if at all possible. Maybe it means going back to adult children and say, I failed you and I see that now, please forgive me. Maybe it's to a loved one. Maybe, you know, I see it on court. I think you've seen it on court cases where whoever's going to jail repents to the family. Uh, a year or two ago, there was that lady, that uh, cop, that white cop in Texas who shot the, I think it was a Jamaican student or an African student, killed him. She went into the wrong apartment. No, no, he came into her apartment or she went into his. She was in the wrong apartment. She just shoots this guy. And it was horrific. They tried to make a race thing out of it. It wasn't a race thing. It was just a horrific accident. She's a cop. She walks into the wrong apartment or he does. I can't remember. And one of the most emotional parts of the trial is she repented to the family and the family came over and hugged her and forgave her. That's a powerful act. She repented though. Maybe you need to plead guilty to those you failed. Maybe they don't need to hear all the charges. Maybe they do. I don't know. It's a case by case scenario. Maybe you just need to plead guilty to God. Maybe everything you messed up is dead and gone and nobody's left to hear it but maybe somebody does. There's a powerful force to confession. To make it a little bit more palatable for evangelicals, we call it accountability partners. But in the end, the accountability partners playing the role of priest. We'll say, I'm guilty of all these charges. I make no excuse, no defense. I acknowledge my failures and my sin is ever before me. That's what David said in Psalm 51. And let's read 1 John 1, 9 as a support for this action. 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins. Why are we pleading guilty? Because the Bible tells us to confess our sins. And also James 5, 16, if you want to write that down, I'll read it. Confess your faults one to another. So maybe there's evidence to go confess where you failed somebody. Confess your faults to one another. I don't believe James is mean for you to go confess your faults to random strangers or people who have no idea what you did wrong. This would seem to imply when you sin against somebody, you go confess it to them. Please forgive me, I failed you. Please forgive me, I sinned against you. Please forgive me, I need to make some adjustments. You may need to apologize to whomever you have failed. You may not even need to repent to them for their sake, but yours. Maybe they've already forgiven. Maybe they don't think anything of it. But maybe for your sake, just to practice some humility, you repent to them for not being there for them, for being gone too much, for thinking what they wanted was more money and not more of you. Maybe you need to repent to them for hitting them with that car when you were drunk. Maybe, maybe, maybe. It's between you and God and the Holy Ghost to show you what to do. Step number three. Next, and let me back up and say, probably most of us who are dealing with self-loathing, we're hung up in point one. We know the charges 
We rehearse them over and over and over again. Maybe we've even gone some degree into verse two or step two and we're confessing them to some degree and we're pleading guilty to them to some degree, but we've not moved on beyond that. So we're in this do loop of I know it and I confess it and I know it and I confess it. But step three is where we start to get more proactive and we can begin to pull away from the past. So my, my wisdom, my counsel for step three, this is what I would do, this is what I have done. Thoroughly evaluate the problem your negligence has created. This is where you open it up and you look at all the damage it's done. And, and I would tell you, my own personal experience and practice, breathe it in so you can see the horror of it. And then what does faith need to accomplish post-mess? Now that I've confessed, now that I've repented, now that I've pled guilty, now that I've asked for forgiveness from my God, what does my faith require I do to clean this up? Post-mess, where do I go from here? For some people, it's the parent who looks back with 20-20 vision and realizes they failed. All right, there's nothing you can do about the past, but where is that child at today and what would faith demand you do to clean it up? Maybe nothing, maybe intense prayer, maybe repenting, maybe praying for better fellowship, maybe, maybe, maybe. There's a lot of different things. Again, this is gonna be a case-by-case scenario. If it's a drunk driver and you hurt somebody, the courts may order you to pay restitution. That's a way to clean things up. Basically, study the mess that has been made and look to see what God's word would require you to do to clean it up or repair it. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 10, 6. This gets you proactive, and this is what Paul calls revenging your disobedience. I like that concept, revenging your disobedience. 2 Corinthians 10, 6 says, this is King James. Other translations, let me say this, the translations on verse 6 are all over the board with this in the Greek. Uh, New Living Translation is absolutely ruthless. He says, once you have obeyed, we're going to come there and punish those of you who don't obey. <laughs> wow, it's pretty rough. Here's what King James says. This is how Pastor Vaughn taught it. It fits here. I like the way it feels in the spirit. This is what I'm going to go with because I know we have a lot of different translations reading, but hear it from the King James perspective. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience, revenge disobedience, when your obedience is fulfilled. So it seems to imply, and again, because all the translations are across the board, it means there's a little bit of uncertainty as to the exact reference and usage of these words and how it needs to be applied. But there's this concept that once you have learned obedience, we would say confession, repents, repentance, or penitence, now we've got to get vengeance for our disobedience, which means we got to go fix stuff revenge your disobedience. That's going to look different for every person based on the scenario. Revenge your disobedience through present obedience. Revenge your disobedience through present obedience. We see this a lot with girls and guys who come out of addiction and they go through like a teen challenge or a next step program. They come out, they get set free. They want to pay it forward, as we would say in modern parlance. They want to get back. They want to serve that kind of ministry to help others. They want to take vengeance on their years of lost life. They want to help others find deliverance and freedom. Folks get delivered from alcohol and they want to go help a prohibition movement. They want to go help at AA. They want to go do something. 
Folks get delivered from things. They want to help others get delivered. That's in them this intuitive desire to revenge their disobedience by being obedient to God's word. So my concept is just simply revenge your disobedience through obedience. Figure out what faith would require you to do to fix the mess, if it's even fixable. Sometimes it's not fixable, and you're left just helping others not walk down your footstep path. It might involve praying for healing for those you've hurt. It might mean getting involved in a ministry that heals, helps heal those in like situations. This will give you the opportunity to so-called make it right. Now we talked about when we taught on the sacraments that the Catholics have this concept of, uh, of, of penance, confession and penance. And the Catholic doctrine on this, I appreciate, I agree with, that sin doesn't just break fellowship with God, which is primarily what it does. Sin breaks things. Confession restores you with God and under the Catholic perspective, which I agree with, and we all practice it whether we realize it or not, under the Catholic doctrine, the Catholic catechism, penance is something that we are assigned by the priest, if we're Catholic, that helps repair what our sin broke. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. We're talking about fixing, repairing, restoring, making some kind of restitution for what you self-loathed over. It may be nothing can be done for whatever reason. And if that's the case, you can still share your testimony and warn others not to follow in your footsteps. Be the proverb they can learn from. I've had several parents over the years when I get to teaching on parenting and some of the young generation rebuffs me and some people think I'm too strict on this. And listen, baby, this thing's a marathon. I'm in it to win it. We'll prove We'll prove things were right all along and so be it. Many times I sit down with families and I'm cleaning up their mess and the look in their eyes is, Pastor, I know you told me not to do it, so please don't say I told you so. And I can see the look in their eyes and I can say probably I have very rarely ever looked at somebody whose mess I was cleaning up and told them I told you so because I don't have to, they hurt. Maybe you can be a voice that goes and tells others, don't do what I did. But I've had many come to me and say, Pastor, if you ever need me to stand up after one of these parenting sermons and defend you and tell the people to listen to you, I will. Because if I'd have heard this 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in today. Maybe you can be the person that shares your testimony. And, and the best thing you can do to help the body of Christ going forward is tell people, hey, I just came down from this footpath. Don't go down there. Stand there. Nope, don't want to go this way. There they be dragons and poisonous gases. Don't go this way. Nope, nope. Keep walking. You already got a shepherd. I didn't listen to mine. Go, go. Nope, you don't want this path. And maybe that's your assignment from God. And that helps the, the kingdom as well. Because young people should learn what not to do from folks who did what not to do. Folks shouldn't be so stupid as to try to reinvent stupid. Ecclesiastes, the whole book is Solomon's mea culpa his formal apology, his formal explanation saying, don't be like me. He cleaned up his mess and he said, this is how I did it. Don't copy me. Thank God we have it. It takes great humility to help the body of Christ in that way because you got to admit where you were wrong and tell everybody else, don't be like me. Don't be like me. And yet this will still be a blessing to the believers. So step three is figure out 
in a sense, what kind of penance you can pay, what kind of restitution, what can be done? What does faith require you to do now to clean up what you didn't do then? What, what kind of vengeance can your obedience accomplish against your disobedience? There's not any one thing I can tell you to do. It's going to be a case-by-case scenario from the Word of God, led by the Holy Ghost, mixed with wisdom to see what that looks like. And that way you make sure you never go back to that goofiness again. Final step, number four. So you have laid out all claims against you. You've pled guilty in a kind of a makeshift court. You receive forgiveness from the Holy Spirit by the blood of the Lamb. And now what do you do? You found some kind of assignment from God where you pay restitution or you revenge your disobedience through obedience. What do I do now? Renew your mind to the reality of God's perpetual forgiveness. Romans 12, 2 says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. You have to have your mind renewed to forgiveness. Even though we've laid out these steps and you'll be able to say, I've done everything I was taught to do, your mind will still want to default back to that state of self-pity and loathsomeness. And I'm unworthy. Yes, we're all unworthy, but we got to mount up with wings like eagles and move on. God puts eagles' wings on unworthy vessels. Brother Sumrall said, wherever your mind screams the loudest is where your faith is the weakest. So if your mind or my mind screams the loudest about forgiveness, it reveals where we need to strengthen our faith. I remember many years ago, uh, my last judo tournament, I dominated the first two matches, but the third match I had no cardio for. And the boy outweighed me by 10 or 15 pounds, which was not fair. He was wrestling down and I was playing up a little. But that weakness revealed to me I need to get cardio. So I was, I was gassed. I was totally steamed. Uh, I had nothing left. So I went home that day and began running hills just to build my cardio up. Because wherever your mind screams the loudest is where your faith is the weakest. And if your mind screams, I just can't forgive myself, I just can't forgive myself, then the solution is easy. And this is where word of faith doctrine kicks in and helps us. We feed on the word of God wherever our faith is insufficient. So we're going to feed on forgiveness verses. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Feed on forgiveness scriptures and speak to your heart. So let's go to 1 John. This will be our last verse for this sermon. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 20, actually 19, 1 John 3, 19. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So even though we're born again, we still have to assure our hearts. We're in him, we're before him, we're new creatures in Christ, but there's a time when we still have to assure our hearts. NIV says we convince our hearts in his presence. We convince our hearts. The word assure there means to tranquilize, to induce one by words. We have to assure. We have to persuade our own hearts. You and I, if we're dealing with self-loathing and unforgiveness, we have to persuade ourselves and, 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 and uh, convince ourselves we are forgiven. Say, no, bless God, I'm forgiven. I, I, here's the whole list of charges. I framed it. Didn't even need to. I, I've got it so well memorized. It's like the national anthem. 
the Pledge of Allegiance. I know it like the back of my hand, but I've confessed it. I've pled. I'm cleaning up. I'm helping people not go that route. You're going to have to speak to your heart and say, shut up. We're forgiven. There's no use crying over this spilt milk. We have to move on. Verse 20, for if our heart condemn us, well, why would you have to assure your hearts? Because your hearts were otherwise condemning you. If our heart condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. You're going to have to convince yourself by faith you are forgiven. And that though you did make a mess and though it is costing people today, you've been forgiven and they will be held accountable for what they now do with their present because now faith is and it is now for them too. You don't let your children hold things over your head. They've been taught the word of God. Now they have to walk with God themselves. Quit trying to live for your kids again. Can't do it. They stand, they fall on their own. If you have to pray that God would send them disciples and ministers where if they're hungry enough, even though they're suffering under their own stupidity, their hunger will pull them up out of that miry clay and allow them to press on for God. You don't get to live back there anymore and neither do they. You got to press on for Jesus and convince your hearts because if our heart is condemn us, God is greater than the heart and he knows all things. But verse 21 is what we want to aim for. If our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. Now the end reason, the end goal for overcoming self-loathing and self-unforgiveness is that it strips us of confidence towards our God. You're always going to be afraid. I'm going to fail God again. Yes, you are but it's not going to be that way. And it's not going to be as severe because you're smarter now. God wants us to have confidence. He saw how we were going to mess up. He saw us mess up. He, saw, he sees us hurt over the mess up. He wants to restore us to a confident place where we can move forward in him and be full of the word of God, helping the, the thing that's before us. We have to stop living in the past. If our heart condemn us not, and only you can teach your heart to stop condemning you. You're going to have to say, shut up. I'm tired of listening to it. We have to do the same thing with our children from time to time. Stop it. Stop whining. Stop belly aching. You're going to have to do the same to you. I'm tired of listening to you. Heart, shut up. And then start speaking the word of God. Do everything you and I have been trained to do to renew our mind and change the voice of our heart. Remind your mind and the devil, I have repented. I have confessed. I have cleaned up my own mess. There is no room, nor cause, nor place for condemnation anymore. Speak to your heart and the devil. They're the only two sources of condemnation in the Bible. Because above all, God wants us to have confidence, not condemnation. Most of our condemnation really is just self-loathing. It's self-pity. It's I'm not worthy. And I understand we are not worthy. But you don't get to live there. Jesus has died for us. He shed his blood for us. He's taught us how to wash our mind and renew our mind. We'd have an answer of a good conscience toward God. From this day going forward, we've already demonstrated we're heartbroken over the past. But from this day forward, we can, as Paul said in Acts, live with all good conscience toward our God. And it comes by saying, now faith is, Lord, what does faith require of me right now? Quit licking the old wounds. Move on. You got to move on. You got to move on. Even the Lord would rebuke Joshua and Moses and say, stop crying. Joshua, stop crying. Moses, my servant is dead. Why are you crying? There's sin in the camp. Quit crying. It's time to move on. Even with um, King Saul, the prophet wanted to cry. Stop, stop crying. Move on. 
We have to at some point say, all right, I failed. We all know it. All right, you know it, I know it. We're all clear. Yeah, let's move on. I guarantee you this, nobody thinks anything about this like you do. Nobody's worried about this but you. Nobody condemns you but you. Nobody thinks anything of it but you. So don't let the fear, don't let the pride, don't let the shame talk you out of marching forward. We don't condemn you. We, we've all messed up. All we can do to glorify our God is move forward with his forgiveness, his promise, and fulfill the rest of our days for his glory. Amen?